Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 127. Today's big Bible question, does religion please God? We're going to be talking about God's heart for the poor, needy, and oppressed. So hello, friends, and happy Monday. Another week begins. A week of uncertainty in the United States, as many of us are still in lockdown, like us in California, and we're not really sure when we're going to get out. But others are beginning to come out of lockdown and probably wondering if it's safe to do so. Regardless of your situation, I want to encourage us all to remember, as we learned yesterday, God is our ever-present refuge. Whether you are locked down and antsy or being released back into work in other situations, the safest place we have in all of the earth is in the refuge of God Almighty. So go back to Psalms 46 again and again this week. If your heart tries to stray into fear, frustration, anxiety, other tough emotions, Psalms 46, Psalms 34, there's a lot of Psalms out there, are just great anchors for us to hang on to, to point us to Jesus, which is the ultimate anchor, as we go through this most difficult of times. Today's Bible readings are Numbers chapter 11, Psalms 48, Isaiah 1, and Hebrews chapter 9. Tomorrow we're going to continue our series on the perseverance of the saints, but today our topic is a little more basic and central. Is God pleased by our religious activities? Now, most people would probably answer yes to that question, but the ultimate answer isn't quite as cut and dried as that, as Isaiah chapter 1 is about to show us. Now, Dictionary.com gives a definition of religion as the practice of religious beliefs, ritual observance of faith. Merriam-Webster's second definition of religion is a personal set of institutionalized system of religious attitudes, beliefs, and practices. So, in in other words, in the eyes of many, religion is sort of a ritual observation of faith in one's beliefs, attitudes, and practices. The basic question of religion in almost all of its forms is something like, what can I do to please God? Or, you know, if you're a polytheist and you believe there's a lot of gods, what can I do to please the gods? Most of those who are not Bible-believing Christians would pretty much assume that Christianity is largely the same as that, just another set of religious do's and don'ts, and maybe mixed in with the call of Jesus to love people, mixed in with going to church pretty regularly, at least enough to keep God and the pastor, priest, rector, bishop, whatever, happy. Is that what God requires, though? Well, let's read Isaiah 1 and find out. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amoz saw during the reigns of kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. O sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They've turned their backs on him. Why do you want more beatings? Why do you keep on rebelling? The whole head is hurt and the whole heart is sick. Even the sole of the foot, even to the head, no spot is uninjured. Wounds and welts and festering sores, not cleansed, bandaged, or soothed with oil. Your land is desolate. 
Your cities burn down. Foreigners devour your fields right in front of you. A desolation like a place demolished by foreigners. Daughter Zion is abandoned like a shelter in a vineyard, like a shack in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would resemble Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are all your sacrifices to me, asks the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They've become a burden to me. I'm tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Clean yourselves. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Please plead the widow's cause. Come. Let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The faithful town, what an adulteress she has become. She was once full of justice. Righteousness once dwelt in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross to be discarded. Your beer is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, friends of thieves. They all love graft and chase after bribes. They do not defend the rights of the fatherless, and the widow's cause never comes before them. Therefore the Lord God of armies, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, I will get even with my foes. I will take revenge against my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and will burn away your dross completely. I will remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges to what they were at first and your advisors to what they were at the start. Afterward, you will be called the righteous city, a faithful town. Zion will be redeemed by justice, those who repent by righteousness. At the same time, both rebels and sinners will be broken and those who abandon the Lord will perish. Indeed, they will be ashamed of the sacred trees you desired, and you will be embarrassed because of the garden shrines you have chosen. For you will become like an oak whose leaves are withered, and like a garden without water. The strong one will become tender, and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to extinguish the flames. So, if you missed it, the pertinent part there is, verse 11, What are your sacrifices to me? asks the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who requires this from you? This trampling of my courts. Verse 13, stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. So what's the deal here? A good, observant Jewish person Upon hearing the words of the prophet Isaiah would probably be thunderstruck, right? Thinking, you know what? I thought God liked us to pray and go to times of worship and 
make offerings and celebrate the festivals of the Bible and sacrifice animals. And the issue here is that God is not pleased with outward and external works of religion that are not accompanied by inward heart change, repentance, and the no compromise of embrace of the truth of God's word. The practice of biblical justice, love, compassion, and relationship with him. All of those things are key and crucial. And if you one is trying to practice the external trappings of religion without transformation, love, compassion, justice, the embrace of truth, etc. It's not pleasing to God. Put another way, God doesn't merely want us to go to church and then live however else we want to live. Otherwise, God's not pleased by our church attendance, our offerings, our outward religious practices, our sacrifices, our worship. If we're not transformed followers of his bringing his kingdom and his ways to the world. You don't just have to take my word for it, though, or Isaiah's either, as it happens, because this theme sort of permeates scripture. Check out Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. God says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your Solomon assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. So wow, God can hate church assemblies? Honestly, that's a little mind-blowing. So what's the problem here? Well, we see a little bit of it. In verse 24, where God says, let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream, we see a little bit more in Isaiah, I'm sorry, in Amos 5, 11 and 12, where God says, therefore, because you trample on the poor and exact a grain tax from him, you will never live in the houses of cut stone you have built. You'll never drink the wine from the lush vineyards you've planted. For I know your crimes are many and your sins innumerable. They oppress the righteous, take a bribe, and deprive the poor of justice at the city gates. So here's the thing, friends. God cares deeply about the poor and the oppressed. He cares deeply about justice, and he calls his people to care deeply about the things he cares about. For instance, Malachi 1.10, another instance of God saying, I don't like your religious festivals if your heart doesn't belong to me and if you're not following my ways. It's Malachi 1.10 says, I wish one of you would shut the temple door so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies, and I will not accept an offering from your hands. One more bit of evidence from Isaiah chapter 58. This is a, this is a powerful passage. I would encourage you to read Isaiah 58 when we get there in a few days. Uh, well, probably a little over a month. We're going to spend a significant amount of time on this passage. It's one of the most important Bible passages to me personally because it's one that uh, I was reading one night as the old year changed into the new year, December 31st to January 1st. I don't even remember what year it was. I think it was in the late 90s. And I had this experience where God brought alive the words on the page in my heart in a way that I don't know that it ever happened before in the Bible, and it just was seared into my conscience, uh, the, the words that I'm about to read, um, where God calls for true fasting and not just religious observation. 
So this is what Isaiah 58 verse 1 says, Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. They seek me day after day. They delight to know my ways like a nation that does what is right and does not abandon the justice of their God. They ask me for righteous judgments. They delight in the nearness of God. Why have they We fasted, but you have not seen. We've denied ourselves, but you haven't noticed. Look, this is what God's saying. You do as you please on the day of your fast, and you oppress all your workers. You fast with contention and strife, to strike viciously with your fist. You can't fast like you do today, hoping for your voice to be heard on high. Will the fast I choose be like this? A day for a person to deny himself, to bow his head like a reed? and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Here it is. Isn't this the fast I choose, says verse 6, to break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him, and not to ignore your own flesh and blood. Then your light will appear like the dawn, and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you, and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. So what is Isaiah 58 calling us to? Well, it's calling us away from strife. It's calling us away from any sort of oppression. And it's calling us to, to, to break off the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes uh, that oppress people, to set oppressed people free, to share our food with the hungry, and to take care of the poor and the homeless and the naked and not ignore other human beings. When we do that, we see this great blessing. Then your light will appear like the dawn and your recovery will come quickly. You know, you might be thinking, well, if I go to church all the time, God's going to be happy. Well, I think it is good to go to church. It's commanded. It's a great thing. But going to church, as big a fan as I am of that, and I'm a huge fan, Going to church without following the ways of the king and his kingdom is apparently a waste of time. It causes God to say, you know what, I just sort of wish you'd close the doors. Some people have speculated that part of what the coronavirus is doing is it's causing us to shut our doors and reevaluate the call of God on our lives and what he wants us to be doing. Sometimes we are way over-focused on operating the church and the operations of the church, and taking care of the building, and all of the accoutrements that come with that, and way under-focused on the Great Commission, and the call to the poor and the oppressed, and the call to cleave to the Word of God faithfully. In fact, just as I was was sharing this, um, just as I was recording the podcast, I paused briefly because I got an email from one of our leaders that is humbly and rightly calling us to, in the midst of lockdown, still be focused on the Great Commission at our church. And I heartily agree with that. We must be about that business. We must be people who are focused on the Great Commission in lockdown, out of lockdown, because we must be people that are focused on all these things we've been reading, the justice of God, uh, uh, helping the oppressed, the poor, and the hungry. Our conclusion is this. God does not merely call people to be religious and to engage in the trappings of religion, like going to church, giving offerings, worshiping, praying, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Those things are good and godly, holy and profitable and wonderful. But when they're unaccompanied by a life transformed by Jesus, 
They're empty and hollow and meaningless. People can pray and not be saved. People can give offerings and not be saved by Jesus. People can go to church their whole lives and not know Jesus. That's the whole point of Matthew 7, uh, where Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. We don't want to be those people who are doing the outward things of religion and not transformed on the inside by the uh, gospel of Jesus and by the values of his kingdom. We're not saved by offerings or church attendance or sacrifices or any external act of religion. Rather, Christians are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. As saved followers of Jesus, our lives are to be characterized by transformation, by love and mercy, by justice for the oppressed, by acts of kindness to all, and intimate abiding with Jesus, his spirit, and his word. Apart from those things, the external trappings of religion, like, you know, church attendance, giving offerings, etc., they don't matter. In the context of those things, they matter hugely. But the thing is, God is not looking for church attenders, as good as that is. He's looking for followers of Jesus who exemplify God's call in Isaiah chapter 1, which we've already read, 16 through 19. Wash yourselves, clean yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. So says Isaiah 1, 16 through 19. And as a closing, let's go to the New Testament and ponder the wisdom of God from the book of James, chapter 1, 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure An undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Amen to that. Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. Now the people began complaining openly before the Lord about hardship, and when the Lord heard, his anger burned and fire from the Lord blazed among them and consumed the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses and he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was named Tabera because the Lord's fire had blazed among them. The riffraff among them had a strong craving for other food. The Israelites wept again and said, Who will feed us meat? We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt along with the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlics. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing to look at but this manna. Well, the manna resembled coriander seed, and its appearance was was like that of bdellium. The people walked around and gathered it. They ground it on a pair of grinding stones or crushed it in a mortar, and then boiled it in a cooking pot and shaped it into cakes. It tasted like a pastry cooked with the finest oil. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. Moses heard the people, family after family, weeping at the entrance of their tents, The Lord was very angry. Moses was also provoked. So Moses asked the Lord, Why have you brought such trouble on your servant? Why are you angry with me? And why do you burden me with these people? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth so you should tell me, carry them at your breast as a nursing mother carries a baby to the land that you swore to give their ancestors? Where can I get meat to give all these people? For they are weeping to me. Give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people by myself. They are too much for me. If you are going to treat me like this, please kill me right now. 
if I have found favor with you, and don't let me see my misery any more. And the Lord answered Moses, Bring me seventy men from Israel, known to you as elders and officers of the people. Take them to the tent of meeting, and have them stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there. I will take some of the spirit who is on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you bear the burden of the people so that you do not have to bear it by yourself. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in readiness for tomorrow, and you will eat meat because you wept in the Lord's hearing. Who will feed us meat? We were better off in Egypt. The Lord will give you meat and you will eat. You will eat not for one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes nauseating to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and wept before him. Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses replied, I'm in the middle of a people with 600,000 foot soldiers, yet you say, I will give them meat and they will eat for a month. If flocks and herds were slaughtered for them, would they have enough? Or if all the fish in the sea were caught for them, would they have enough? The Lord answered Moses, Is the Lord's arm weak? Now you will see whether or not I what I have promised will happen to you. Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. He brought seventy men from the elders of the people and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord descended in the cloud and spoke to him. He took some of the spirit who was on Moses and placed the spirit on the seventy elders. As the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they never did it again. Two men had remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad. The spirit rested on them. They were among those listed, but had not gone out to the tent, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and reported to Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, assistant to Moses since his youth, responded, Moses, my lord, stop them. But Moses asked him, Are you jealous on my account? If only all the people of the Lord were prophets, and the Lord would place his spirit on them. Then Moses returned to the camp along with the elders of Israel. A wind sent by the Lord came up and blew quail in from the sea. It dropped them all around the camp. They were flying three feet off the ground for about a day's journey in every direction. The people were up all that day and night and all the next day gathering the quail. The one who took the least gathered 60 bushels and they spread them out all around the camp. While the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed, the Lord's anger burned against the people, and the Lord struck them with a very severe plague. So they named that place Kilbroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had it craved the meat. From Kibroth Hatava, the people moved on to Hazaroth and remained there. Psalm chapter 48, verse 1. The Lord is great and highly praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain rising splendidly is the joy of the whole earth. Mount Zion, the summit of Zaphon, is the city of the great king. God is known as a stronghold in its citadels. Look, the kings assembled. They advanced together. They looked and froze with fear. They fled in terror. Trembling seized them there. Agony like that of a woman in labor. As you wrecked the ships of Tarshish with the east wind, just as we heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of armies, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. Selah. God, within your temple, we contemplate your faithful love. Like your name, God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with justice. Mount Zion is glad. Judah's villages rejoice because of your judgments. Go around Zion, encircle it, count its towers, note its ramparts, 
tour its citadels so that you can tell a future generation, this God, our God forever and ever, he will always lead us. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 1. Now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry in an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was set up in the first room, which is called the holy place, where the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place. It had the gold altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Their cherubim of glory were above the ark, overshadowing the mercy seat. It is not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. With these things prepared like this, the priests entered the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry. But the high priest alone enters the second room, and he does that only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people that had been committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been discussed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol for the present time, during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God? Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance, because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will is valid only when people die, since it is never in effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet wool, hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself in all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might not might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to bear sin, 
but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Amen, amen, amen. What a wonderful place to end. Just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. What a wonderful two-verse summary of the good news of Jesus. He died so that we might live, and he's coming again to bring salvation to all those who are waiting for him. Bless his name. Bless you, my friends. May the Lord be with you and give you great grace today and this week. Good day to you and Godspeed.